0: We're going to look at two verses, the last two verses of 2 Corinthians 5, as we've marched through this book, we've come to the last two verses of chapter 5, and one at a time, let me me read the 20th verse, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God, And I don't have time, as I've gone through the last several weeks, walking through chapter 5, but what a glorious chapter. The new creation in Christ that we are, that uh, we don't live for ourselves anymore. How could we for what Jesus has done? And this concluding couple of verses here where he says, Therefore we are ambassadors of Christ, as though he is making an appeal through you and I. We beg you, on his behalf, be reconciled to God. The obvious point is that ambassadors represent their king. They represent the kingdom from which they reside. To be an ambassador for Christ is a actually, as you would think, a political term. Paul is drawing from a Roman culture and adding a political term to his dialogue here. He wants us to see this awesome privilege we have of being representatives of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. There's this, there's this little Greek word, hooper, uh, that is made much of in commentaries. And it's over and over in this whole chapter, but many times in, these last, in this verse here, it's the word for, in the phrase ambassadors for Christ. It means to be in behalf of or in one's stead. It appears at the end of the verse, we beg you on behalf, hooper, of Jesus Christ. If you go back up to verse 15, it appears twice. And He, meaning Christ, died for all, so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for Him who died and rose again on their behalf. The word is He died for in one stead, for all. He rose again for on our behalf. He, Jesus, took our sin on the cross he stood in for us. He was our substitute, if you will, for our atonement. He rose from the dead on our behalf. And now He places within us, and it says that early in the chapter, He has placed within us the gospel of His kingdom. That we become His mouthpiece. Just as if, it were, if He were still here in flesh, as flesh and blood you ever think about that? What an awesome thought. He lives in us. We are His voice, His love, His acceptance, His forgiveness for others. He is the appeal. Here is the appeal He is making. He says, we beg you, be reconciled to God. Reconciliation. We looked at it last week in detail. It removes the breach between two parties. It's uh, it's repairing that which is broken. And I mean, don't we live in a world of brokenness? People who are angry and willing to fight against those who don't agree with them and people who are engulfed in shame. People who can't forgive somebody and uh, resentment controls them whether they admit it or not and people who are stressed or mad or fearful or rejected or feeling condemned, shameful, and it's all because of this breach between them and God. And Jesus came as that bridge to heal that. And when he left, he placed that spirit of him himself in us and he says, "Now I will make my appeal to repair this breach through you." Ambassadors Representatives. They live in a foreign land, but they're not of the land, right? So if we are to beg people towards this reconciliation to God, as it says, what exactly is that? Is it, is it worthy of our devotion? Is it worthy of giving our life unto? And the last verse of the chapter tells us... Uh, In one of the most beautiful, concise presentations of the gospel, in in one verse, it says this, He, God, made Him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. The great exchange, we talk about it a lot here, our sin for His righteousness. This reconciliation act of God is this exchange that takes place, a transaction if you will. People come in with their brokenness and their anger and their shame or their addiction and their sin and Jesus takes it all and He puts it all on Himself. This transfer, if you will. Our sin is placed on Him, which means taken away from us. And then there's this exchange. He takes the sin and in return, He gives us the very righteousness of God. And I would say it's a pretty good deal for you and I. Righteousness. The declaration of complete, utter innocence before God. And that is the good, great, awesome news of the gospel of Christ. That we have been given the ambassadorship of this kind of grace. Our lives have been so changed by this work of Christ that we become these testimonies. These placards, if you will of what Jesus can do in a person's life. And the way that we live our lives is this appeal to others. To be reconciled to Christ. He can do this in your life too. He wants every man, woman, and child to be reconciled. To hear the gospel. To be impacted by this Jesus who took the sin on himself and in exchange gives the righteousness of God. So there's this call that goes out to all the broken, all the wounded, all the rejected, the lonely, the sinful. There's glorious hope because of Jesus Christ today. Look at me. I once was dead in my sin, now alive in Christ. I once was hopeless and lost, but now found with His Spirit. What a privilege to be an ambassador for Christ in his stead, if you will, on his behalf. So what does it look like? Redemption. Sharing the story. What does representing Christ in his kingdom, his gospel, what does it look like? The gospel is love. There was a small town in Oregon just east of Portland and um, one of the leading pastors of the community became involved in adultery and ruined his marriage and his ministry. He was prominent in the community. His fall came with a resounding crash. His church splintered into fragments and hurting confused people were scattered all over the city. About a year and a half later, he calls one of the other pastors in town early on a Sunday morning, and he asks for permission to attend the service that morning. This pastor said, well, of course you can. Well, you know, this is my second wife I'm with now. I'm divorced from my first, and... uh, Are you really aware of all that has transpired a year and a half ago? Well, sure I'm aware of it. Well, he said, I'll tell you, Pastor, we've been trying for eight months now to find a place to to go to church. The last time we tried was a month ago, and that morning we were asked from the pulpit to leave. We've been met at the door of other churches by pastors who heard that my wife and I were coming and they asked us not to come in. They said we had caused too much trouble. Still others have, turn, have heard that we might show up and called in advance to ask us, please don't come. Frankly, I don't think we can handle it again, pastor. If we were to come and be an embarrassment to you and be asked to leave... I just don't know what my, what would happen. My wife is close to a nervous breakdown as it is. He asked if he could come and he knew that we had an overflow room that watched on closed circuit TV and he says, could we just go in there and sit in the back? The pastor said, listen, you be here and I'm going to meet you at the front door and welcome you. He did just that. And the couple sat in the back, but it started this process of restoration that God wanted to do in their life. After the service, the fallen pastor went to the host pastor and buried his head in his shoulder, weeping and just held him. He asked the question, could you really love me? And God eventually healed him and his wife and their brokenness and uh, their shame and restored him. Reminds me of a scene from Jesus' life. A Pharisee had asked him over for dinner one night and at some point in the meal, this woman comes in and we only know one thing about this woman. The Bible says only gives one descriptive term for her. Sinner. Everyone around the table knew she was immoral, out of place in this illustrious gathering of Pharisees with the new rabbi in town. She had brought this expensive vial of perfume and as she poured out the perfume on Jesus' feet, she began to weep and her tears flowed upon His feet and she wiped His feet with her hair. No doubt she had been touched by the life of Jesus because He just loved her when others condemned her. The Pharisees took exception to the woman. Blamed Jesus for not throwing her out because after all, she was a sinner. Later in Luke 19, 10. Jesus says the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was what? Lost. Ambassadors for Christ. We love like He loves. He's making His appeal of love to the broken, the wounded, the shamed through us. Another thing that the gospel is, it's acceptance. Early one morning, a pastor receives a phone call from a young man who started off by saying this, I'm going to commit suicide. The pastor said, I'm not sure this is the right way to handle this, but this is what he said. He says, why are you talking to me? (laughs) The man says, because I don't know what to do. I don't want to do this, but I don't know what else I can do. I'm a heroin addict, and last night I nearly killed somebody. And I'm afraid to go home, I'm afraid to do anything. I'm totally out of control, and the only thing I know to do is to end my life. And so the pastor said, could we please get together and talk about this? And he says, absolutely not. I called the pastor a few months ago, and he told me to come by his office, and when I got there, the sheriff was waiting for me. I made up my mind that I wasn't about to go to another preacher, and the pastor on the phone, his heart broke, and he said this, give me 15 minutes, can you just give me 15 minutes, I'm going to head over to the church, and I'm going to stay there for three hours. You come and you drive around that church as many times as you want to to realize that I'm there by myself. At any time, if you want to risk coming in, I will be there, the only one there. And the pastor waited two and a half hours before the door opened. And a man came and a broken man was reconciled to God. It reminds me of a story in John, the fourth chapter. A woman from Samaria was, she was living with a guy after she had tried marriage five times, and it didn't work, so I'll just live with somebody. She's drawing water from a well when this Jewish rabbi, Jewish, mind you, Jesus strikes up a conversation with her. He says, give me a drink. I wonder how Jesus said that. You know, in the Bible, it says, give me a drink. I don't think he said it quite that way. Give me a drink. And she says, basically, why are you talking to me? In other words, don't you realize how out of place this is? A Jew, a Samaritan, a man, a woman, a rabbi, married five times, living with somebody. So many gulfs between the two. And Jesus just saw her as a person longing for acceptance. Someone broken, who had obviously been looking for love in all the wrong places. He spoke to her heart and he said, I can give you something that is spiritually satisfying. I can give you living water. He doesn't ignore her situation and he tells her, I understand you have been married five times and you're living with someone that you are not married to now. But the offer of living water still stands. You see, for Jesus, there's no barriers of race, a nationality, or class, or gender, or even spiritual history. Just one person who accepts another and gives hope. Ambassadors for Christ. We accept people the way he did. Amen. The gospel is forgiveness. You may not know the name of Calvin Hunt, but he was an incredible gospel singer whose 2008 album, Bridges, was nominated for a Dove Award. He was a featured soloist on many Brooklyn Tabernacle songs. He died of cancer when he was 52. But Calvin didn't grow up knowing the Lord. In fact, it was quite the contrary. When he was 19, he became involved with a woman named Miriam who had two little preschoolers. They just loved Calvin because he was so funny. They lived together, Miriam and Calvin, for five years before she came to him one day. She says, you know, we really ought to get married. And so they did. But during their whole time of living together and into their marriage, they both started using crack cocaine and uh, even on their wedding night, they had a crack party. It wasn't long before Calvin was spending most all of what he made as a construction worker on Crack cocaine. And many of his uh, paydays, he would call his wife Miriam and say, can you make sure the kids are in bed early tonight because I'm bringing home some really great stuff. It went on for eight months until one day Miriam had had enough. (laughs) She was putting the kids to bed one night and she could hear Calvin and his friends in the kitchen getting high. And something just snapped in her. And she says, this has got to stop. She went and she threw them all out, including Calvin. She found her way to a church and placed her faith in Jesus Christ. And in the midst of her desperation, her family was trying to counsel her. Now that you know Jesus and you've got this crack addict as your husband, it's time to just... Say goodbye to him. She said, no, I will pray for him every day. Calvin was living on the streets. But he knew when she and the kids would go to church. And that's when he would take advantage of the time to sneak back into his apartment and get a hot shower and raid the cupboards for some food and get a fresh change of clothes and... When he would run into Miriam, she would always tell him, I'm praying for you. One day God is going to deliver you. And it would just anger him so much. Three years went by. Calvin's still on the streets doing his drugs and Miriam's still praying. One night, Calvin comes to the apartment and uh, they were at church. Helped himself to some food, a hot shower, a change of clothes. And uh, he realized, you know, there's that church, man, that guy preaches forever. <laughs> I still got some time. I think I'm going to just lay down and take a quick, quick nap. I don't get uh, a bed like this on the streets. And as he tried to sleep, he heard what sounded like crying from the other room. And, but he went and he checked. There was nobody in the apartment. And he got kind of spooked. So he ran out the door and he ran and got on the subway and, uh, to see if his wife and kids really were at church. And he walks in the door and he hears the same weeping that he had heard in the apartment. And then he hears his name. he hears people praying wherever Calvin Hunt is. Bring him here tonight. Don't let this family go through this horror another day. Lord, you are able, set him free. Set Calvin free from his bondage once and for all. Calvin, he's walking down the aisle and uh, I think it's kind of like a bride walking down to meet a groom. (laughs) He gets up to the front, and pastor looks up and just says, Thank you, Jesus. Calvin is here. And he falls in a heap, of course, and he prays and uh, says, Oh, God, I've become everything I said I'd never be. I don't want to die this way. Forgive me. You know, as ambassadors for Jesus, We hunger, we pray that people who are wounded and broken and sinful and estranged from Him would be forgiven. Reminds me of a story over in John, the 8th chapter. Jesus comes upon a scene where a sinner, an adulterous woman, is about to be stoned for her sin and He walks right into harm's way as the Pharisees have the stones in their hands. And he challenges their, the church, their lack of forgiveness. He shows them, you're as lost as she is. When he says, you who are without sin, you can throw the first stone. And then he looked at the frightened woman in her shame. I don't condemn you. You're forgiven. Go and sin no more. You know, why do I tell you these stories of redemption today? Because that's what Jesus is all about. Jesus works miracles in hopeless situations. Jesus is a God of love, acceptance, and forgiveness, and He changes people's lives, and He makes His ongoing offer to others through you and through me. And maybe you're someone who lives with regret, and you look at your own moral failures. You look at people that you've hurt and wonder if people would love you if they knew your story. I want this place to be a place of love. Amen? Maybe you're a person who is longing for acceptance. Your immediate reaction to Christians, or perhaps your experience with some Christians, is that they want respectable people. You've drawn this conclusion. They wouldn't accept me if they really knew me. Don't you want this to be a place of 100% unconditional acceptance of people? Amen? Different races, different backgrounds, different economic classes, different spiritual histories, they are all welcome and accepted here. It is not our role to size up people, judge people, but to accept them and see what Jesus can do in their life. Maybe you're a person who just needs forgiveness today. Your life, you would say, is a mess. And I just want to be clean. I just want to be separated from all of this. I want this to be a place of forgiveness, redemption, second chances. God loves you, God accepts you, God forgives you, and He makes that appeal through His people. Finally, perhaps you're a believer in Christ who has lost sight of your ambassadorship. You spend way too much time in the embassy. In fact, you want to be there as much as possible so you don't have to rub shoulders, perhaps, with the wounded, the foreigners, the sinful. Sometimes you can see yourself, I see myself sitting around the table with Jesus, disgusted with the wastefulness of the sinful woman. Doesn't she know how much that perfume is worth? Doesn't Jesus know? Perhaps you can see yourself, I see myself at the well, correcting Jesus. This is not culturally acceptable, what you're doing, Jesus. Don't you know who she is? Perhaps you can see yourself, I see myself sometimes holding the stone in the line of Pharisees, fully justified in my morality to throw it at her. Why is he advocating on her behalf? We all need him. We need his heart. We need his love. We need his acceptance. We need his forgiveness. His compassion. His strength. His spirit. I invite you, and uh, as Paul says in in the passage, no, I beg you on His behalf to come. Come to Him. Let's pray. Father, in these moments of, of just contemplation, I don't know where every person here might be when they think about their life and they think about the love that You've given to them and the the grace that has been shown to them and this genuine acceptance. No matter where they've come from, this forgiveness that was complete and final, and they cherish this life they have in you. They, they cherish and they cultivate it. And they, they're so grateful. And Yet there are those moments where they, they see either the flesh that rises up again. Or they see their own biases come out. And they see their own prejudice. Or they see their own judgment even. And Father, there is this call that you're giving to us to understand the Messiah Jesus and what you really are like. Because Father, in our world today, I, I just see it in so many so many places. The, the encroachment of the darkness. The encroachment into the church. The encroachment to pull the church into a political swing or pull the church into this modern way of thinking, or pull the church into this new theology, this new way of looking at the Bible, this this new terminology. I see this encroachment everywhere. And sometimes what gets lost in the shuffle, what gets pushed to the side, is this reality of who you are. The purity of the Gospel. A Gospel of love. Genuine real love the gospel of acceptance you take all comers the gospel of complete utter forgiveness no matter how shameful no no matter how despicable no matter what the past totally forgiven totally Father, I'm praying for a movement of your spirit in the church of today that the real Jesus emerges in such a powerful, powerful way that all men are drawn to it because I firmly believe to my dying breath I will believe, Jesus, that you are irresistible. You are irresistible if people really know and see you. And so we worship you today. We worship you as our risen king, as our life, as our hope. In Jesus, you we pray. Amen.